TED Talks are recorded live at the TED Conference and produced with WNYC New York Public Radio. This episode features Architecture for Humanity founder Cameron Sinclair, winner of the 2006 TED Prize. TED Talks are made possible through the support of BMW. Here's Cameron Sinclair. So I'm going to take you on a journey very quickly. To explain the wish, I'm going to have to take you somewhere which many people haven't been, and that's around the world. When I was about 24 years old, um, Kate Storer and myself started an organization to get architects and designers involved in humanitarian work, and not only about responding to natural disasters, but involved in systemic issues. We believe that where the resources and uh, expertise are scarce, innovative, sustainable des- uh, design can really make a difference in people's lives. So... This all began, I started my life as an architect or training as an architect, and I was always interested in socially responsible design and how you can really make an impact. But when I went to architecture school, it seemed that I was a black sheep in the family. Um, Many architects seem to think that when you design, you design a jewel, and it's a jewel that you try and crave for. Whereas I felt that when you design, you either improve or you create a detriment to the community in which you're designing in. So you're not just doing a building for the residents or, or, or for the people who are going to use it, but for the community as a whole. And in 1999, um, we started by uh, responding to the issue of the housing crisis for returning refugees in Kosovo. And I didn't know what I was doing, like I say, mid-20s, um, and I'm, a, I'm the internet generation, so... We started a website, we put a call out there, and to my surprise, in a couple of uh, months, we had hundreds of entries from around the world. Um, That led to a number of prototypes being built and really experimenting with some ideas. Um, Two years later, we started doing a project on uh, developing mobile health clinics in sub-Saharan Africa, responding to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Um, That that led to... um, 550 entries from 53 countries. Um, We also um, have designers from around the world that participate, um, and uh, we had an exhibit of work that that followed that. Um, 2004 was a tipping point for us. Um, We started responding to natural disasters and getting involved in Iran and BAM, um, also following up on our work in Africa, uh, working within the United States. Most people look at poverty and they see the face of a foreigner, but go live. I live in Bozeman, Montana, and go up to the North Plains on the reservations or go down to Alabama or Mississippi pre-Katrina, and I could have shown you places that have far worse condition than many developing countries I've been to. So we got involved in, in work in inner cities and elsewhere, and then also um, I will go into some more projects. 2005, Mother Nature kicked our ass. I think we can pretty much assume that 2005 was a horrific year when it comes to natural disasters. And because of the internet and because of um, connections to blogs and so forth, within literally hours of the tsunami, we were already raising funds, getting involved, working with with people on the ground. Um, We run from a couple of laptops, and in the first couple of days, I had 4,000 emails from people needing help. So um, we began to get involved in projects there, and I'll talk about some others. And then, of course, this year we've been responding to Katrina, as well as following up on our reconstruction work. So this is a brief overview. In 2004, I really couldn't manage the number of people who wanted to help or the number of requests that I was getting. It was all coming into my laptop and cell phone. 
So we decided to embrace an open, um, basically an open source model of business that anyone anywhere in the world could start a local chapter and they can get involved in local problems. Because I believe there is no such thing as utopia. All problems are local, all solutions are local. So, and that means, you know, somebody who's based in, in Mississippi knows more about Mississippi than I do. So that, so, what happened is we used Meetup and, and all these other kind of internet tools, and we ended up having 40 chapters starting up, um, thousands of architects in 104 countries. In the past seven years, this isn't just about nonprofit. What it showed me is that there's a grassroots movement going on of socially responsible designers who really believe that this world has got a lot smaller and that we have the opportunity not the responsibility, but the opportunity to really get involved in making change. So what you don't know is we've got these thousands of designers working around the world. We're connected basically by a website, and we have a staff of three. And, and so it shows the power of just a single website. And that by doing something, the fact that nobody told us we couldn't do it, we did it. And so there's something to be said about naivete. So seven years later, we've developed so that we've got advocacy, instigation, implementation. We advocate for good design, not only through student workshops and lectures and public forums, op-eds. We have a book on humanitarian work, but also disaster mitigation and dealing with public policy. We can talk about FEMA, but that's another talk. Um, Instigation, developing ideas with communities and NGOs, doing open source design competitions, um, referring, matchmaking with communities, and then implementing, actually going out there and doing the work. Because when you invent, it's never a reality until it's built. So it's really important that if we're designing and, and, and trying to create change, we build that change. So here's a select number of projects. Kosovo. Um, we did an open design competition, like I said. It led to a whole variety of, of ideas. And this wasn't about emergency shelter, but transitional shelter that would last five to ten years that would be placed next to the, the land that the resident lived in and that they would rebuild their own home. This wasn't imposing an architecture on a community. This was giving them the tools and, and, and the space to allow them to rebuild and regrow at the way they want to. We had from the sublime to the ridiculous, but they worked. This is an inflatable hemp house. Um, it was built. It works. Um, this is a shipping container. Built and works. And a whole variety of ideas that not only dealt with architectural building, but also the issues of governance and the idea of creating community through complex networks. So we've engaged not just designers, but also you know, a whole variety of uh, technology-based uh, um, professionals, uh, using rubble from destroyed homes to create new homes, um, using um, um, straw bale construction, creating heat walls. Um, and then something r remarkable happened in 99 is we went to Africa and... Um, originally to look at the housing issue. And uh, within three days, we realized the problem was not housing. It was the, the growing pandemic of HIV-AIDS. And it wasn't doctors telling us this. It was actual villages that we were staying with. And so we came up with this bright idea that instead of getting people to walk 10, 15 kilometers to see doctors, you get the doctors to the people. And we started engaging the, the medical community. And I thought, you know, we thought we were real bright you know, sparks. We've come up with this great idea, mobile health clinics that can, that can widely distributed throughout sub-Saharan Africa. And the community, the medical community there said, um, we've said this for the last decade. 
we know this. We just don't know how to show this. So in a way, we had taken pre-existing needs and shown solutions. And so, again, we had a whole variety of ideas that came in. Um, this one I personally love because it, the idea that architecture is not just about solutions but about raising awareness. This is a CANAF clinic. You get seed and you grow it in a plot of land and then um, uh, once, and it grows 14 feet in a month and on the fourth week the doctors come and they mow out an area, put a tensile structure on the top and uh, when the doctors have finished treating and, 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 and um, seeing patients and, and villagers, you cut down the clinic and you eat it. It's an eat-your-own clinic. So <laughs> it's dealing with the fact that um, if you have AIDS, you also need to have nutrition rates. And the idea, that the, the idea of nutrition is as important as getting antiretrovirals out there. So, you know, it was a serious, serious solution. This one I love. The idea is it's not just a clinic, it's a community center. This, so this looked at setting up trade routes and economic engines within the community so it can be a self-sustaining, self-sustaining project. Every one of these projects is sustainable. That's not because I'm a tree-hugging green person. It's because when you live on $4 a day, you're living on survival, and you have to be sustainable. You have to know where your energy is coming from. You have to know where your resource is coming from, and you have to keep the maintenance down. So this is, this is about getting an economic engine, and then at night it turns into a movie theater. So it's not an AIDS clinic, it's a, it's a community center. And these ideas developed into prototypes, and they are eventually built, and uh, currently, as of this year, there are clinics rolling out in Nigeria and um, Kenya. From that, we also developed Siatemba, which was a project the community came to us and said, the problem is that the girls don't have education, and we're working in an area where young women between the ages of 16 and 24 have a 50% HIV-AIDS rate. And that's not because they're promiscuous. It's because there's no knowledge. And so we decided to look at the idea of sports and create a youth sports center that doubled as an HIV-AIDS outreach center And the coaches of the girls' team were also trained doctors, so that there would be a very slow way of developing um, um, kind of confidence in healthcare. And we picked nine finalists, and then those nine finalists were distributed throughout the entire region, and then the community picked their design. They said, this is our design. Because it's not only about engaging a community, it's about empowering a community and about getting them to be a part of the rebuilding process. Um, but what we're known probably most for is dealing with disasters and development. And we've been involved in a lot of issues such as um, um, uh, the tsunami and also things like Hurricane Katrina. This is a $370 shelter that can be easily assembled. This is a community design, um, community designed um, community center. And what that means is we actually live and work with the community and they're part of the design process. The kids actually get involved in mapping out where the, 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 the community center should be. And then eventually the community is actually, with, through skills training, end up building the building with us. Um, here is another a school. Um, this is what the UN gave these guys for six months, uh, 12 plastic tops. Um, this was in August. This was the replacement that's supposed to last for two years. When the rain comes down, you can't hear a thing. And in the summer, it's about 140 degrees inside. So we said, if the rain's coming down, 
let's get fresh water. So every one of our schools have rainwater collection systems, very low cost, um, a, um, a class, three classrooms, and rainwater collection is $5,000. This was raised by hot chocolate sales in, um, in Atlanta. Um, it's built by the parents of the kids. The kids are out there on site building the buildings. And it opened a couple of weeks ago, and there's 600 kids that are now using the schools. So, disaster hits home. We've seen, we, we see the bad stories on CNN and Fox and all that, but we don't see the good stories. Here is a community that got together, and they said no to, wait, to waiting. They formed a partnership, a diverse partnership of players, to actually map out East Biloxi, to figure out who's getting involved. We've had over 1,500 volunteers rebuilding, rehabbing homes, um, figuring out what FEMA regulations are, not waiting for them to dictate to us what, how you should rebuild, working with residents, getting out them out of their homes so they don't get ill. Designing housing. This house is going to go in a couple of weeks. This is a rehabbed home done in four days. This is um, a utility room for a woman who's on a, on a walker. She's 70 years old. This is what FEMA gave her. 600 bucks. Happened two days ago. We put together very quickly a washroom. It's built. It's running. And she just started a business today where she's washing other people's clothes. Why don't aid agencies do this? There's a problem here. Luckily, we're not alone. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of architects and designers and inventors around the world that are getting involved in humanitarian work. And this is just a selection of things that got happened in the, that were built in the last couple of years. From Brazil to India, Mexico, Alabama, China, Israel, Palestine, Vietnam... The average age of a designer who gets involved in this project is 32. That's how old I am. But the future is not going to be the skyscraping cities of New York, but this. And when you look at this, you see crisis. What I see is many, many inventors. One billion people live in abject poverty. We hear about them all the time. Four billion live in, in growing but fragile economies. One in seven live in unplanned settlements. If we do nothing about the housing crisis that's about to happen, in 20 years, one in three people will live in an unplanned settlement or a refugee camp. Look left, look right, one of you will be there. How do we improve the, the living standards of five billion people? With 10 million solutions. So I wish to develop a community that actively embraces innovative and sustainable design to improve the living conditions for everyone. <laughs> Open source architecture is the way to go. You have a diverse community of, of participants, and we're not just talking about inventors and designers, but we're talking about the funding model. And my role is not as a designer. It's as a conduit between the design world and the humanitarian world. And what we need is something that replicates me globally, because I haven't slept in seven years. <laughs> Secondly, what will this thing be? Designers want to respond to issues of, of humanitarian crisis, but they don't want some company um, in the West taking their idea and basically profiting from it. So Creative Commons has developed the Developing Nations License, and what that means is that a designer can... And we, the Sea Temba project I showed was the first ever building to have a Creative Commons license on it. As soon as that is built... 
Anyone in Africa or any developing nation can take the construction documents and replicate it for free. Why not allow designers the opportunity to do this, but still protecting their rights here? We want to have um, a community where you can upload ideas, and those ideas can be tested in, in earthquake, in flood, in all sorts of austere environments. The reason that's important is I don't want to wait for the next Katrina to find out if my house works. That's too late. We need to do it now. So doing that globally, and, and the, I want this whole thing to work multilingually. When you look at the face of an architect, most people think a gray-haired white guy. I don't see that. I see the face of the world. So I want everyone from all over the planet to be able to be a part of this design and development. The idea of needs-based competitions. We also want to look at ways of matchmaking and putting funding partners together and the idea of integrating manufacturers, fab labs in every country. When I hear about the $100 laptop and it's going to educate every child, educate every designer in the world. Put one in every favela, every um, slum settlement. Because you know what? Innovation will happen, and I need to know that. It's called the leap back. We talk about leapfrog technologies. I write with World Changing, and the one thing we've been talking about is I learn more on the ground than I've ever learned here. So let's take those ideas, adapt them, and we can use them. These ideas are supposed to have um, adaptable. They're allowed to be, they, they should have the potential for evolution. They should be developed by every nation on the world and, and, and useful for every nation on the world. So it's going to take a lot of computing power, because I, I want the idea that any laptop anywhere in the world can plug into the system and be able to not only participate in, in developing these designs, but utilize the designs, also um, a process of reviewing the designs. Um, I want every Arab engineer in the world to check and make sure that we're doing stuff that's standing, because those guys are the best in the world. My mom once said, there's nothing worse than being all mouth and no trousers. <laughs> I'm fed up of talking about making change. You only make it by doing it. We've changed FEMA guidelines. We've changed public policy. We've changed international response based on building things. So for me, it's important that we create a real conduit for innovation and that it's free innovation. Think of free culture. This is free innovation. Let's do it. Thank you. That was Cameron Sinclair, recorded at the TED Conference in Monterey, California, February 2006. TED Talks are produced by WNYC New York Public Radio for TED. TED Talks are made possible, in part, through the support of BMW. For more information on TED, visit TED.com.